listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Welcome to episode 25 of Sentimental. Now this I can do. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brain. I don't give a crap if you covered yourself in peanut butter and had a 15-hooker gangbang. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the movie podcast that we can only hope you enjoy listening to as much as we enjoy making. My name is Stephen Hovicki, and as always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Hassan Godwin and Lathan Conger III. Our guest today has been a working artist and writer in the comics industry for nearly five decades. In that time, oh, don't has... say that. <laughs> in that time, I feel really old. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he has written and/or drawn tens of thousands of pages. Oh man. <laughs> featuring most of the iconic characters for all of the major and minor comics publishers that exist today, and some that don't dis- exist anymore. Oh, Most yeah. well-known for his acclaimed four-year run on Marvel Store, in which he created many of the characters and situations that would one day be realized on the big screen MCU Thor films. His groundbreaking graphic novel based on the film Alien set the bar for movie adaptations that has rarely been met since. He continues that legacy today, writing and drawing the series Ragnarok for IDW Comics. A true legend in most every sense of the word, but to me, he's just my pal. Walter Simonson, welcome to Cinemental. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'll get back to you about that legend stuff later. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump into news that gives us fits. No! 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 All right, so who's got, uh, who's got something? Anybody? Latham? Hassan? Who? Who wants to go first? Hassan? <laughs> uh, the, only, the only thing I have was we, and I spoke to uh, Dolce about it one show ago, um, <laughs> was, the, was the Keanu Reeves uh, Kickstarter? Yeah. Berserker? Yeah. And that, you know, that people are upset that... Uh, Sour grapes. Yeah. People are basically upset that, they, that the industry, the comic book industry is starting to utilize Kickstarter now. Why not? And I don't... Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. No, nope. I do, I do see it's going to snowball, but I don't think, I don't think you can stop it from doing that. That was the only statement you made about it that I didn't agree with you on. When I, because I would, I, I, I watched the show tonight, and I, I, I think that was the only thing I'm you sorry. said. No, it's okay. I was the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watched part of it too. <laughs> so uh, I'm that sorry. Was, <laughs> that was the, that was the only part of it that I thought that you, you misfired on, and that was, and that was. Yes, Let me sir. jump in just for a second. As a guy who yes. only vaguely knows what you all are talking about, I know who <laughs> Keanu Reeves is. I know there was some That's kind cool. of Kickstarter. That is all I know. Yes. Can you talk about it? I have no idea what it was about, what he was raising money for, and I wouldn't mind what we call an establishing shot. In- Here you go, pal. <laughs> so, so what happened was, as, uh, so Boom Studios uh, created a, uh, as they have in the past, they've done projects with people like Milo Ventimiglia and uh, Alyssa Milano, where they come to Boom Studios and they have a story idea. And Boom Studios takes that, brings them, puts them in touch with a professional comic book writer, 
and they work together to build out a multi-issue arc, four, five, six issues, whatever it might be. And with their story idea, then they put it out as a comic book. And, you know, the celebrity is involved with it. And so it gets a little extra airplay because it's a cele- has celebrity involvement. Sure. It's, got, it's got a name attached to it. Uh, they get story credit usually. They usually don't get writing credit, but they'll at least get story or concept credit. But the, the problem here is, is that rather than just releasing it through normal channels and using everything, Boom Studios has chosen to do the take the path of using Kickstarter for uh, ostensibly what it is made for, which is a marketing platform. And so they're using it in a way that most makes sense. And by attaching Keanu Reeves's name to it, I mean, an A-list actor right now, you're talking about it, get, it, immediately, it immediately elevates it to a level. The whole thing with Kickstarter is the more eyes you can get on something, the better. That's all it comes down to. So if you attach someone who theoretically has an extra 8, 10, 15 million sets of eyes that he can get to and tell them about it, then clearly that project is going to have a leg up on every other project like it out there. Okay? So the problem is, is people are upset because rather than Boom Studios just putting the book out as a project like they would any other comic book, because there's no conventions to push it at. There's no appearances that we can have that there's no comic con where we can bring Keanu Reeves in to do signings of the first release of the book, whatever they've chosen to use Kickstarter as a launching pad to sell, not just the first issue or first collection, but the entire series. This is so this, this Kickstarter is actually for 12 issues or three complete graphic novels enclosed in a slipcase, the last of which doesn't ship until late 2022. You know, that's this. So this is a Kickstarter that's not for one specific small project. This is a Kickstarter that's for a, a very large year-long release project that'll go from next year into 2022 and cover 12 issues, not just this, you know, one book. The other, so the, so the problem is, that people are seeing this as a, this is like a publishing company rather than selling their books in a bookstore where they belong are going and using something else to sell their product. Uh, and it's in, and it's in, it's in the place where has been the, the world of independent publishing and for an established real publisher to come in and use this independent publishing platform, they think is, is, is they're screaming foul because of that. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, Boom Studios could just put the book out anyway and just sell it through their normal channels and everyone would be happy and everything else. But they decided to go to Kickstarter just and see what happens because they put a bunch of, you know, fancy packages together and different colored metal boxes. And, you know, they did a whole string of stuff that's fairly pricey, right. but they've raised $700,000. Yeah, but they're not. That's different than selling it. They're raising money to fund the project. That's not the same thing as, as trying to sell something you've already made and used money to make. And that's the problem. The point is, Latham, that this project would have been made regardless of Kickstarter. So that's right. why that's why people because this is coming from an established publisher, this wasn't put out there in order to make the money to make the project. The project has already been made or is in the process of being made. It didn't need to get paid for. It was already being paid for by the company. Then why do it on Kickstarter? You're undermining what Kickstarter, 
I mean, I, so, I think Kickstarter, Kickstarter is garbage anyway from my own experience, but I don't, uh, you're, you're just, you're just under Kickstarter allowing that to, to happen on their platform is further undermining what they undermining what they define themselves to be. What, what does Kickstarter define itself to be? Uh, well, uh, uh, you got an idea, you got a project, come bring it on our platform. And that's what they the did. People that are in our community will come fund it, which is complete and utter garbage, utter garbage. If you have a name and you're established already, of course, you're going to get funded on Kickstarter. That's, that's not true, not but go ahead. I'm sorry. There've been plenty of established names who put projects on Kickstarters. That I did, agree. That I did agree. not get funded. Well, well sure. I, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are too. But my point is, their Kickstarter is at the extremes. They have projects like this right. that are slam dunks, and that that then you've got at the other end the idiot who said he was making potato salad and people gave him seventy thousand dollars. Correct. Potato salad. Okay. Yep. The the middle of artists who have a dream and they want to put something up and then nobody knows who they are or whatever, your chances of succeeding on Kickstarter are minimal, minimal at best. I, I completely disagree with you. I okay. completely, I completely disagree with you. Okay. Uh, first of all, the guy who gave the guy potato salad money yep. is not the guy who's going to back a comic book. Probably, but he might. That's the Probably thing. Not. Kickstarter covers such a wide array of projects that I, I would also argue that they don't cater to any one industry. They're there simply as a tool. It's a marketing tool. That's all it is. And if you, if you use it and you use it successfully, Kickstarter's not going to give a rat's ass because they're not in charge of making sure that whatever is getting done gets fulfilled. They're going to take 5% off the top of whatever gets pledged. So if you have this thing that goes to a million dollars, they couldn't be happier because they've just made 5% of a million dollars for literally just having this in place. It's a I business mean, lay. It's like then, anything then, else, but it's a, it's a marketing tool. It's like if I, it's a market. Then, then take off, then take off the marketing that you're there to help the little guy uh, realize his dream of writing his own comic book, making his own movie, uh, writing his own book, making his own Why? Music. It works for that. It works for that perfectly. At about 25%. 27%. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I'm, I, I, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it, you may be right. I'm, I'm just saying. I may be crazy. <laughs> Are you just well, it's, maybe? It's just a, it is a, a lunatic we're looking for. It is a kind of a it is a bull market though i mean like yes it's, it is sure. so i mean sure. that's kind of, it is what it's supposed to be right i mean you just sure. put your you just try your luck it's a spin of a wheel right sure if that's what you think it is then absolutely well absolutely all right okay i mean that's <laughs> if that's if that's how you want to exist that's fine but in the future if something happens with it and people are like what happened with kickstarter I think you can go back to this well, and trace it from here. That was that was kind of what I said. Once once you start using it as a platform for celebrity uh, fundraising, it is going to change. That's basically what I Push meant. Everything else out about. There's only a certain amount of money. There's only a certain right. amount of people are going to go on there. People that go on there all the time, they're going to just like anything that they get. But, sorry, but look at it, look at it this way, though. All right. So let's say 
the the Kickstarter that's going on right now. I don't know the number of backers they have. The dollar amount, the dollar value is seven hundred and twenty some thousand dollars right now, but a number of backers is something like I want to say close to seven thousand. Okay, if that's five thousand people were drawn to this because they saw it on an article on a web page somewhere about people complaining about a Keanu Reeves Kickstarter or comic book Kickstarter that Keanu Reeves is doing and they get pushed to Kickstarter and that's 5,000 people that either weren't aware or that didn't normally go to Kickstarter to look for new things to, for entertainment. If that's 5,000 new sets of eyes who are suddenly scrolling through other projects on Kickstarter, I can't see how that's a lose. Because they, they, they scroll through other projects and they, they don't contribute or they play the dollar game. Oh, I'll throw a dollar to that project. They need, they need 13000 but I'll throw a dollar to it and pretend I'm being helpful. I, I just don't buy it. They asked for 50000 on this yep. project and they have received 724000 How many back? How many backers? From... 6,750. There you go. And I guarantee you there's at least three to 4,000 backers of that project. If this is the first time they've backed anything. I hmm. just, I, I guess I, I see what your point is. I, I also think that it is kind of muddying the waters a little bit. Also it's a $50 minimum, you know, as opposed to. Right. Cause it's the whole, you know, it's the whole 12 or nine, nine volume series. Right, for something sight unseen. The average unseen. contribution is 108, 108 yeah. bucks. Average contribution yep. for this. So no one, no one contributed a dollar. Well, you can't, like Hassan said, you can't. It's whatever right. the minimum is. So, I, I, I just think if Canarese will be the there next week, it'll be William Shatner next week. It'll be Jason Momoa. You know, I mean, yeah, they're all going to do it. Oh, they've already done it before that. What's his name? Uh, Josh, uh, the guy from Scrubs. Um, Zach Braff. Yeah, Zach Braff did one on there that got flack because he he ra- I forgot what he raised. Did he raise a ton of money for some kind of right. film project? And it's like, dude, you got this money. You can get it from a studio. You know, you you're, you don't. Mystery Science Theater three thousand did it, and then funded an entire an entire season of their show on on on, on streaming episodes of their show. It's just giving artists who are already established and successful, especially Keanu Reeves. I mean, my goodness. It's just giving them... I'm sure this wasn't Keanu's choice. I'm sure he... I'm sure Boom Studios... Well, supposedly he pitched I'm sure Keanu did not... He, supposedly he pitched it yeah, to Boom. He pitched, he pitched going to Kickstarter or the story? I, I don't know. I don't know whose idea it was to do Kickstarter, but I know he pitched the story to them. Okay. I'm sure he pitched the story to them. My point is, is I don't think Keanu went in there and goes, yeah, well, let's put it up on Kickstarter. We'll make a killing. All right. I, I know. Yeah, well, I think, I think Keanu's doing okay. I, okay. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, mean, I, I just have misgivings I about just, it. That's all. I mean, we'll see I what happens. I think it's detrimental right. to spreading the wealth, but that's me. So what do I know? I, I don't know. What do you know? Not much. Kind of like, it's kind of like, gentrification of neighborhoods yeah where artists move into a low rent area love it and and make it an attractive place to live and then people a lot more money come moving in and the people who don't have the money in the first place that made it a good neighborhood have to move out to some other low rent neighborhood perfect analogy but hard hard to define and hard to uh, you know you could make that argument clearly in words but to show it with stats is difficult 
So, uh, right. That's, but people find ways to do it. So maybe they'll do it with this too. And especially if it doesn't end up being the case. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I disagree. Obviously, Latham and Hassan don't feel the same way. I mean, ultimately, I I think I'm at one end. Hassan, yeah, I'm. I I think that's the, I think that's the nature of business in general. That it's going to whatever you build, whatever you establish, if it's got legs, if it's going to last, it's going to become something else. But that's and and so that's not necessarily bad. That's not necessarily like the devil at work, you know, but then also in it becoming this other thing, it is now suddenly not what it originally was. Listen, and that's, listen, I'm, I personally have a stake in this as I'm in the publishing business and several of our projects that we're working on uh, are considering going the Kickstarter route as a marketing play first before taking the book out to mass. I mean, that's just what we're looking at. So, I mean, these, you know, I'm, I'm watching all this kind of stuff very closely, but the thing is, is again, we're working with artists and properties that are well-established, well-known, and they'll get drawn a lot of eyes to them. I, I, but do you understand how that changes the field though? Because now if you have the, if you have the wherewithal to have celebrity faces on your product versus someone who doesn't have the resources to have celebrity faces on their product. Now the whole game has changed into who has better sponsoring, who is more guaranteed to be able to get their product finance versus someone who is just working his butt off off the street and puts his product up and it doesn't even get a glance because there's no celebrity name on it. Right. Perfectly worded. Whatever. if, If Kickstarter exists 30 years from now, I'm wrong. So that's fine. Well, listen, if the internet exists 30 years from now, I'll be surprised. But that's, you know, it'll be a totally different thing. We won't, be looking, now, we won't be looking at it on screens, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, we'll looking, it'll, so. just, it'll, it'll just be beamed directly into our heads. Fuck All that, right, I'm, I, I'm, almost, I'm almost scared to ask, but Lathan, what do you got? Well, I don't have much. Um, first thing is I saw Tenet a second time. Oh, did uh, you and Carl go? Yeah, we went. He, okay. he loved it which was amazing because awesome. he doesn't like time travel movies. But watching it the second time, it confirms what you were hoping after you finished it the first time. And that's all I'll say. I'm not going to spoil anything or ruin anything, but it's, okay. it's becoming quickly uh, one of my favorite films of his. Uh, he's just good. His brother didn't help him write it. He wrote this one all by himself. And it's, it's a movie that begs to have a map. And I hope someone comes up with the map. And once the map is online, I'm going to look at it. I tried drawing one of my own with colored markers and failed miserably. So I'm not going to even try and draw a map of the movie. There might be one out there already. <laughs> what did you say, Walter? Yeah. There might be one out yeah, there already. He's, yeah, trust me, I'm sure, I'm sure he's been looking. Uh, believe me. There, 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 are, there are people who describe what happens, but no map like they have for a movie called Primer. Because I call this movie the big budget primer. Has anyone else seen Primer besides Steve? No. No, I never heard no. of it actually. Wow, Hassan it's hasn't a, it's seen a, Primer. It's, it's a lo- it's a very like micro budget indie film about a guy who invents a time travel. Two guys who invent a time travel machine. But it's, yeah, but it's, I it's, know it's, of it. It's, it's, it's and it's short. It's only about eighty five minutes long, but it's honestly 75. the first film to get time travel correct well to get it correct and to make it to visualize it and use it in the story simple correct in a simple way and then after it's over 
it get you just realize how complicated everything got and you want to watch it again it's only 75 minutes yeah 75 minutes yeah but but it's it's a it's a really neat little film okay okay just 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 real quick so okay this criteria the oscars are giving for films to be diverse in order to qualify for the best picture award or whatever award or whatever i mean it's you i i understand you have good intentions right you're you're starting to take art in what you claim is the pinnacle award for the art of cinema and film and now you're putting limits on what people need to do to get the award from you and i'm sorry but that's utter garbage whether you have good intentions or not i've i've been done with the oscars now for years but i you know i'll reference something that's been nominated out of habit but this is this is it for me this is I don't want to watch a movie that's nominated for best picture and has to qualify by having a certain amount of diverse people on the cinematography cast or a story that must involve a disabled person or a person of a certain ethnic descent. It, it is ridiculous. Well, so, so answer me this then. And I, and I, I did briefly look at the criteria. Yep. I ran through the, the three or four things that they had listed that they put out there. And I, I also read the, the quote from the guys from, the, from What's-Her-Face, from the head of the Academy, who said that, you know, these things are, these are guidelines. These are not, these are not stone tablets. Just thinking about it right now as you're talking about it. So then a movie like Dunkirk couldn't have gotten nominated. Why? Because it's all white Englishmen and French. Essentially, I mean, white Europeans. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. You can't like so that. Any. So that's my question. Are they saying that Dunkirk, by these criteria, could not have been nominated for Best Picture? No more history films of a part of the United States that had no ethnic, you know, no... Uh, diversity. You know, no diversity. No story of cattle ranching in Montana. Uh, no, no story. <laughs> wait, wait. Of- oh, 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 oh. As we've already proven by one of tonight's films, there were black cowboys. Well, I were, but I'm, I'm saying, you know, you have to, if you think of a story like that, you have to think, oh my God, okay, where do I fit my ethnic character into this story? I mean, are you kidding? Uh, yes, you kidding? yes. There's I, I don't disagree with you there. I think that that avenue to have to, to have to consider that if you want to ensure that your film will be eligible for a best picture, that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, to, to, and it shouldn't make any sense to anybody. Now, the, just... And so this doesn't turn into a big discussion. And we, I know we want to get to Walter's movies. It, in contrast to that, the pleasurable news that I read right after that was Sasha Baron Cohen film Borat 2. It's yes. all done. <laughs> it's going to be massively offensive. And it's done. And that's it. And no one's going to censor it or whatever. And that, that makes me happy. That will, uh, yeah, I, I actually noticed that uh, a little while ago. I saw that pop up and I was, I started kind of chuckling to myself. Uh, and, uh, Walter, did you see Borat? Nope. Okay. Only, only yeah. clips. I mean, I know what it's about. All right, you know, okay, you, so you know what it's about and you know the guy. Yeah, I know, okay. I know the character. Okay. Sasha Baron Cohen. I mean, it's a massively it offensive movie, but it's. Yeah, it's just, you know, that'll, that'll be, that'll be interesting to see. Just well, I'll just leave it right I there. That'll he's going to put a lot of his Trump stuff in there, which should make it great, uh, because he was filmed in character at a lot of Trump rallies. So that's right. That's right. I forgot but about. I'm that. sure that won't be his only target. And I don't know. I just wish people would just make art. Stop worrying about what the art is about. There's plenty of diverse artists, 
as we've seen from our podcast, all these posters we've looked at, all the guests we've had. Yeah, it's, I don't, I just want to, I just want to see stories and not have people bitch about it or worry about classifying it. Well put. All right. So Walter's choice for guilty pleasure, <laughs> Castle Keep. Once upon a time, there was a war. Was it yesterday or was it tomorrow? You'll keep hearing many things about Castle Keep. You'll hear about the one-eyed falcon. Major, I don't think you know what this castle means. It stands on the most important crossroads in the Ardennes. Major, it isn't possible. It stands on the road to Bastogne. And the dove. If something isn't saved, then, then what's it all for? The cowboy. Yes, sir. Is the world suffering a water shortage, Corporal Clairvoy? Not now, sir, but, but suppose this war just goes on and on and on and destroys everything in the world. Well, since the Volkswagen can get along without water, she's bound to survive when other creatures die off. The baker. You're waking everybody up. Go back to your outfit. We have no outfit. We don't believe in fighting. Oh, who believes in fighting? A 10th century castle in a 20th century war. What is the life of one man? Or one castle. From 1969, directed by Richard Brooks with a running time of 117 minutes, a group of tired soldiers during World War II decide to encamp in a 10th century castle to defend a German attack. <laughs> now, that being said, uh, Walter, I, I'm going to need a little explanation of this film because I, I, I there were points in this movie watching it where I had a hard time believing and when we talked this afternoon and you said you hadn't seen it all the way through in a long time I'm like is he remembering the right movie <laughs> I was I was totally. okay all right good all right so go on why, why, why this movie <laughs> Well, Castle Keep, I haven't seen I haven't seen the whole thing in a long time. I don't even remember the last time I saw it. I saw it in a originally in like a what must have been a third or fourth run movie theater in Mount Gretna, Pennsylvania, which I meant to go look up before we did this today, but I didn't. I forgot to go do it. To see where the hell that is. And it was what it was was uh my major professor when I was in college in geology uh had a summer home. It was just a summer cabin in Mount Gretna. There was a lake nearby, and, and his family came. And I was really close with his kids. They were all about my age. And we went there, and this movie was playing somewhere. We said, oh, I'll go see a movie. And we're playing Castle Keep. I, I'm sure it was another theater within 30 miles. And uh, about five or six of us saw it. I loved it. One of the sons loved it. Everybody else hated it. <laughs> That's why it's on the list today. That's because great. honestly, I, you know, I'm one of those guys where I'm bad at Scrabble trying to make words out of these letters. It's just, I can't do that. that. That kind of thinking. My vocabulary is not bad, but I can't think of words. I'm looking at letters. And the same is true. I mean, I'm trying to think of, quick, name a bad movie you've seen. And I'm like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so, you know, besides Plan 9 from Outer Space. But, uh, but it, was right. kind of, it was really interesting to watch it again. I tend to like spacey movies. Yeah. I don't know if every spacey movie out there right. is one of my favorites. There's a Japanese horror, I think it's Japanese, horror film called House, yes. in which there's a Criterion version. Hausu, yes. 
And I picked it up. You know, I saw something on the web. Picked it up. It's really spacey. Mm-hmm. It is, and it's a very. It's just a very strange movie. It's probably a little more. Well, it's more linear than Castle Keep, but it's it again. It's very spacey. And there's some other films I can think of off the bat that have. They're they're almost like ongoing metaphors that just go and go and go. And I kind of like some of those films. Castle Keep was kind of like that for me. I thought it was a very spacey film. It is, I have to say, it's more episodic than I remember from when I saw it originally. Like I saw it in 1970, and I've seen bits of it since then, but no, I don't think about the whole thing complete, maybe once. But it's more episodic watching it this time out than I remembered. However, I did remember almost all the episodes, which means something stuck in my mind. Some of the stuff, I mean, I thought some of the movie was hysterical. Again, a little like the professionals. I loved the characters. I thought for a cast of, what, eight, nine soldiers, whatever there were in that group, they did a pretty decent job of giving them all characterizations, some more, some less. I thought they were interacting in in ways I thought was very funny. I thought the stuff with the Volkswagen was hysterical. I thought Clearboy and his Volkswagen, his (laughs) love of this perfect technology that would survive long after man was dead and there was no water. (laughs) Because it had an air-cooled engine, you'd have a world full of just Volkswagens. Was great. I I don't know that I entirely believe that you could dump a Volkswagen into the moat and then swim <laughs> over to it and climb into it and drive it out, having it float. It was I'm a beautiful not sure scene. That would work. Beautiful but, scene, though. But I don't really care. I just in the movie, I thought it worked <laughs> great, and it was a, a you know a metaphor for German technology, if that. But it was very funny, and so I did enjoy it again. I thought that uh, Astrid Heron, I think her name was. Oh, my goodness. She's in like four or five movies is all, apparently. Five, yep. four, four, five. I haven't seen her in anything else, I don't think. Yeah. I don't know what they were. There's one horror movie at the end. Silent Night, Deadly Night. And which I've heard the name of, but not know anything about. And uh, I thought she was really beautiful. And <laughs> someone, I was, I don't mean, she was so still. I don't know that I would, how I would rate her acting per se, but I just thought, I thought it was, she was really lovely. I thought Lancaster was really interesting. He's, I was a big fan back at that time, late 60s, early 70s, of the novels of Alastair MacLean. A friend of mine and I became, were big fans of them. Uh, I read almost everything he's written. There were a couple of very later ones I didn't. His first 10 or 12 books are my favorites. He became, I think he became an alcoholic. Later books don't really hold together. They seem more like pieces of books than the whole book itself. But the first eight or 10, well, 10 or 12, up maybe at the Bear Island, for me, were great. And some of them, like Fear is the Key and Ice Station Zebra, a lot of them got made in the movies. The later ones were all made in the movies and were just almost novelizations of the films that he wrote. But the early ones really involved a strong central character who didn't always look like a tough guy. One of the, it's a movie, a version of When Eight Bells Told, a very young Anthony Hopkins. And not a great film. I did enjoy it. I liked the book better. But Anthony doesn't, at that time, he doesn't look like a tough guy. He's just a guy, you know, whatever he is. He's not, a, not incredibly handsome, just a neat-looking guy. And it turns out that was what McLean's characters were like. And they were, they were incredibly tough internally. And they were, that, they were the heroes of the books. And usually, they ended up somewhere in the film developing a, a film, the book, developing a sidekick who was... Bigger, brawnier, and as tough on the inside, who would help him out through the way these jams occurred. And Major Falconer, the lead character in yeah. Castle Keep, 
seemed like almost a combination of both of those guys to me. This, this oh, very right. strong, completely competent, I mean, almost omni-competent strategist, tactician as a soldier who kind of understood not only what was going on around, from as far as I could tell, pretty minimal information, a star shell over the, over the castle, and he knows that means the Germans are going to be coming this way instead of going some other way on the road to yes. that But he, they, he, I thought it played well. I thought Lancaster played him much more interior character than he was <laughs> the guy in The Professionals. He was much <laughs> less emotive, much less out there. And I like the, I liked the, comp, the, the competition and the contrast between him and Patrick O'Neill, who was the, uh, like, Boston Brahmin kind of guy who understood culture, uh, whereas Falconer had, as far as I could tell, almost no use for it. There was was some scene at the very end where I get the impression he maybe had some idea about what that was about. But until the war was won and the Germans were defeated, it just made no difference. That stuff was just, if you had to burn it during the war, you just have to burn it. And that's all there was to it. Um, I mentioned earlier about the, and the other characters I mean, Clearboy, Peter Falk was a riot. I love showing up, you know, I'm a baker, I'm a baker's wife, and that, and off you go. I thought, yeah, if only war were like that, really. But, uh, but war is probably a little more like the end of the movie was. I will say that at the very end of the film, that last half hour where the final assault on the castle, right. there are parts that I can, I can almost never watch without tearing up. I'm sorry, folks, that's just the way it is. <laughs> I just love the way that stuff was handled. I love the way Falconer, I, I love the, I've forgotten his name. Al Freeman Jr., is that right? Yeah. The black actor who yeah. played uh, Alistair P. Benjamin. Yeah. Yes. Well, I loved Benjamin. him in that movie. Private I'm Benjamin. not sure he's alive anymore. He may be gone now. But he, I thought he was great. That's the first time I've ever seen him. He was in some TV uh, yeah. sitcom for a while. He years. passed away in 2012. 2012. Yeah. 2012. Okay. I thought, I thought he was great. I, he was such a kid. And at the end, when, it, when Major Falcon asks him if he shaves yet, because he started shaving it, and the answer was no. <laughs> no. A lot of, a lot of soldiers <laughs> who were over there were fighting, or, you know, they're 18, 19 years old. Yeah. Someone's a little younger if they lied about their age. And, and he's the guy, as the writer, he's the guy who escapes and takes the girl with him. And I thought, and, and, and Falconer has a thing at the end where he's talking to him about the fact that, well, as a writer, you must have insight. You must have, you know, things that we, we all hope as writers we have. I'm not sure every writer has that. I've read some stuff where I'm not sure. I think that's part of the, I think that's part of the metaphor of what writing was about in that film. Yeah, that's So there's just stuff like that. I mean, it's, it, the movie is more a series of metaphors for me almost than it is an actual story. But I love the assault on the keep at the end. I love the Count trying to keep the castle full of its culture and undamaged. And the fact, I also love the editing at the end where in the beginning, there are actually a couple of flashes in the very beginning where you see the screaming gargoyle with the music behind it. Oh, I will say I like the music in both these films. Uh, Mich- Michelle Legrand wrote the music in Castle Keep. There's a little bit of, this, of the, maybe the staple singers, guys who did the, the a cappella mm-hmm. uh, interwoven vocals. One or two scenes. I don't know if it was really them, but there are a couple of early scenes in Castle Keep where that's the kind of music that's behind some of the cultural stuff that you're seeing. So that stuff I loved. I love the guy quoting the Bible as he and his pal have their bazooka and the tank comes moving into the church. Why the tank doesn't open up with a machine gun right at that moment, 
I don't know. Maria. But I just just stuff like that that was so spacey. The 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 whores and the Red Queen who greet the Germans with Molotov cocktails. I don't know how well that would work for them afterwards. Um, <laughs> fact, doubling back the professionals for one second. One of the things I did think about a while back when I'd seen it, not when I saw it the first time, I did wonder. They're all riding back into Mexico for escorting Raza and uh, I forgot your name again, the Claudia Cardinale character. Um, Maria? And, and I'm thinking, okay, these guys are riding back. If they go as far as Raza's hacienda, how's that going to work out since they're responsible for the deaths of how many of the guys that hung out in the hacienda? Right. How are the rest of the Mexicans going to, oh, well, you saved Raza. That's okay. It's fine that you killed 45 of my friends. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm I, not sure they were right going to go back that far, their, but. Right after they cut that scene, they, they turned around and rode back across the border. I, just, I never thought about that when I was, you know, watching it years ago. So, but in Castle Keep, I love that they open up in this in the mud. Yep. I love that they then the snow comes very rapidly, and then you have this whole fairy tale. And then by the time the movie is over, it gets a little muddier, a little grayer. And then the whole fight at the end occurs in the transition from night to day. So when the fight begins, it's still light. Yes. And by the time the fight is over, it's nighttime, <laughs> and you have all the, the red glare of the explosions and the fires and the, all that yep. stuff happening in contrast. And then the editing at the end, where a little like echoing what happened at the very beginning where they bring the whole thing around where you get intercut these really fast intercuts for a split second of the complete statue and then back to the fires and then a little longer intercut of the rose garden or whatever and a little then a little then a fire and it it moves so it's the fires get shorter and shorter and the snow fields and the castle get longer and finally it just shows the castle as it had been and you hear alistair p benjamin's vocal which is the same from the beginning of the film where eight guys, walking wounded, staggered to the castle, and you know whatever the rest of it is. So, it's my kind of film. It still was, I have to say. As I, it felt more episodic to me now, but I never, I never lost interest in the episodes. And I was, and I, I love seeing Bruce Dern for twenty ten minutes or whatever he was in the movie for. Which this may be, might be the first film I ever saw Bruce Dern, and I'm not sure but uh, certainly one of the early ones. So I, I would say not a film for everybody, <laughs> but yeah, it's my cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, the movie starts off and you're like, okay, first of all, it's got all, all the dialogue has been, has been 80 yards. So it has this sort of, it doesn't feel natural because all the dialogue has been done after the fact again, because obviously they, they must've had a problem with the recording or maybe their audio files are part of their, their audio recordings got screwed up or something. I don't know, but the whole film is done that way. And there's a, and there's a way that it's shot. And because of the way, because of that ADR, I had a very strong sense at the beginning that it felt like an old hammer film. It just had that quality to it. And then of course they go into a castle and I'm just like, well, this all sort of fits. It's just, you know, they're doing a war movie, but, you know, and, Ka and, and Hammer made a bunch of non-horror films. So, I mean, it, it, it could have been. I, I'm a big fan of Sidney Pollack. And I find that the fact that he directed this, this way, I, I honestly felt at some point that he was shooting this war film 
And then at night, when he was asleep somewhere, somebody was sneaking in with the guys from the cast and shooting these sort of random sequences and scenes. And then he would, they were in cahoots with the editors to kind of put this all into a, a thing, you know, put it all together into a, a coherent film or incoherent as the case may be, however, however it works for you. There are some scenes in this movie that I, that I honestly am, I was just literally sitting here shaking my head at. There's the, there's the sequence with the Volkswagen. There's the sequence with, uh, with Tony, uh, Tony Bill, the, the, the unbelievably underrated Tony Bill in one of his few film acting roles. With the flute in the forest where they, get, where they encounter the German yeah. guy in the bushes and he throws him the flute so the guy can fix it. And, and then, and then Columbo just shoots him anyway. And it's like, you're like, what? It's what we do for a living, Lieutenant. Yeah, I, I love the line. I love that line in the delivery because I love what I think, but how you got there is just so weird. <laughs> and then that, like he shows up and he's like, they go to town and all the guys go into the Red Queen and he's standing in front of the bakery. And they're like, come on, are you, are you coming? And he goes, it's a bakery. Where there's a bakery, there's a baker's wife. And they're all just look at him like, okay. And they go into the, into, the, into the brothel. And he knocks on the door and the woman answers. And she goes, yes. He goes, I'm a baker. And she just invites him in. And he meets the kid. And he has this little th- couple of sentences about the perfect life of the, of, the, of the baker and his wife and his child. And there's no greater uh, importance in the world. And she's like, oh, come to bed. I, I'm, I'm the baker now. I'm like, I'm like, what is happening here? What is, what's going on? And then the next time you see, he's in the kitchen and he's making bread. And they're like, at one point, they're like, go get the, go get the baker. You know, and it's like, they have to go. And, yeah. and, the, and the whole thing, the first time, and then when he comes downstairs, because uh, that's when Bruce Dern shows up and they're all making all the noise in the street. Wow. And he comes out and he's like, people are trying to sleep. Keep it down. And they won't. So he shoots his gun. And then they're like, oh, you're serious. <laughs> and then they kind of like walk off with their tails between their legs, like singing much quieter, but still singing. <laughs> but <laughs> there are so many bizarre sequences in this film. I feel like Burt Lancaster is almost like the Mad Hatter in this. He comes around and he, sh- and he shows up at the, at the, at the either the, the top or the bottom of some of these sequences, like the scene, the whole sequence with the Volkswagen. And and uh, and Scott Wilson's uh, love being in love with the Volkswagen. He comes out and he's like, "Well, what's the story, soldier?" And he's like, he tells him this whole long thing, and then he's just like, "Well, carry on." And it goes inside, and you're like, "Did you hear what he just said?" And, and you know that, and then it's like when the two guys when the two guys push the Volkswagen because they they're gonna get rid of it, so they're gonna push it into the water, and that whole thing falls apart. And then all of a sudden he's up on the thing on, up on top of the, the parapet wall of the castle. And he's like, Hey, what are you guys doing? They're like, Oh, uh, we were just coming back from looking for infiltrators. And he's like, very well, get to bed. And he's like, tells the one guy, he's like, make sure this guy gets in bed and, and goes to sleep. And, like, and then he tells the other guy to make sure that the other guy is in bed and goes to sleep. And you're like, what, what? 
And then he's just like, carry on. And he, he goes about whatever he's doing up on the roof again. It's just like, this guy is unbelievable. I did, there's so many just oddball things about this movie. And it, it does have, I'm not going to lie, it does have a certain charm for that. But when you go in, you just don't, it just doesn't feel like it ever should have gone in these directions. I just feel like there's, there's so many sort of like these little, these little tendrils that grow out and go different places, but they don't really go anywhere. They just stop and then they go on to another one. And then, and then they sort of drift back into the main, the main thing. Other than the fact that at the very beginning, yeah. they do set up the fact, like you said, that this guy is a writer and he's going to write these like, Oh, Castle Keith, that's what you should call <laughs> the book. You know, and that's a, you know, that's, I get the story and that's the guy that lives. So that's the, that's, that's where we get the story from. Yep. But how is he telling the story of all this other stuff that isn't, you know, that wasn't there you know, he was clearly not around. I just, th- this movie just had my head spinning uh, on, a, on a lot of different levels just for, uh, mm-hmm. I, I find it very interesting. I don't know that it's something, well, I probably will watch it again. Cause when I got done, I was like, Theater, you have to watch. I'm gonna make you. I'm gonna make you watch this movie because I, I I don't even know what to do. I, I don't even do, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, it. I, I and again in a million years, if I had picked this up out of the blue to watch, like if you hadn't recommended this, like if I had just stumbled across, oh, World War II movie with Burt Lancaster, eh, I'll throw this on. I, I honestly don't know what I would have done. I would have been like, what the fuck is going on? And also, in, in, it might be in the scene where the two of them come back drunk from the red queen and it, yes i have a report yes and, and one of things in that report that was interesting and, and strange was this is i haven't finished my report yet sir oh right right and he turns back and says well he steps forward and just says in a very serious voice the germans have broken through the lines in the ardennes right right meaning they're going to be here and and imminently right bid, bids them good night and he's like that's a very succinct report Yep. <laughs> yep. And it was. Yes. Yeah. Latham. Um, it, when it's when I see something I don't know about it, and it becomes like a pop culture moment I don't know about, I need time to process it, and that's where I am with this. I just it, it, it's like watching a questionably dubbed Lynch movie is the best way I can put it. It's. I like I like the stuff that is off kilter and makes you wonder what you just watched or why they went in that direction. That doesn't bother me at all. I'm just I'm trying to process it as a whole piece of art and movie, and I don't dislike it. I just I think I need to watch it another time just to fully appreciate it. I laughed at times, and other times yeah. I was like Steve, like. Uh, I think that's supposed to be funny, but I don't get the context. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's it, it, and also it's a movie that feels like it's it was put out exactly in 1969. I don't know why <laughs> it feels that way to me. I don't know mm. much about 1969 except it being the year that I've heard about, but it, it just seems like it it fits the times and like the ideas of it fit the time. It's, it's really hard to get a grasp on it. I don't, there's not many movies that leave me um, reeling or spinning, but this one, this one has. So I guess that's a good thing. I guess we want to be challenged by films and want 
want to see stuff that we're not ready for or, you know, don't fully get the first time around. And that I'd rather watch something like that than a movie I, I identify as bad within the first 10 minutes and it never gets better. So like six string samurai. Yeah. That movie was just garbage. I mean, this, this, this is, <laughs> this is, you know, someone had a lot of creativity and you know, Pollock's films too. So this is at the beginning of his career, I believe. Um, or yeah, I would have to. It. Yeah. Did he do the graduate? No, no. Uh, Elaine, Elaine May and her partner, the guy that, right. uh, who was the guy that partnered with Elaine May, the comedian? He began doing films. I think it was his. The Graduate was one of his. Elaine May, Mike Nichols. Mike, Mike Nichols. I think that's the Mike Nichols film. This was this was this was Sidney Pollock's fifth film. Okay, so maybe at this point he's just like, you know what, fuck it, let's just do this. And, you know, like, like Steve said, his doppelganger got up at night and just started filming different weird scenes. And, and then they, they fused into the same person in the editing room and said, well, let's try and make something of this. It's, well, you know, what's interesting. It is based on a novel that existed before that, the film. So I, I might, I might, I might try and track that down and see if I can I'd find a copy of that. And see how, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah so. I mean, Burt Lancaster said in an interview one time, apparently about this, that it was an analogy uh, as an anti-Vietnam film. He made that he he said that in an interview. I can I can see that there's oh there's a lot of anti-war stuff. Yeah, going there's on in this. general anti-war stuff. If that's the war that's going on, then yeah, then you're going to be anti that war. So yeah, that that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. I you know I I'm glad I watched it. I, it's just at times. You know, I've seen I've seen some movies that are pretty fucked up and aren't linear and and are hard to process. And this is linear and it's hard to process. So uh, and that's that's not a that's not a slight on it. It's just I'm just being honest. I, I I'm glad I watched it for the challenge of it. There's just a lot going on. I mean, for a movie as arguably visually simple as it is there's just a lot to unpack here yeah yeah there is there i mean there's a lot a lot of undertone that is that is going on that i i right. admit i don't fully get so it is a movie that i would like to be able to write like sometimes yeah. some of the dialogue <laughs> there's a scene at the end where Clearboy, rossi and Within an Amberjack in the Rose Garden with the machine yes. gun, Clearboy gets badly hit, <clears throat> and Rossi is they, they think the drawbridge is up, so they're going. Rossi is going to leave. He's going to swim the moat. He's going to climb into the castle and lower the drawbridge. And Amberjack is going to grab Clearboy. They're going to go back, and I think they're going to swim the moat again. Rolling the drawbridge and swimming the moat are all right. this stuff at the same time. And and finally, the camera is over the. Rose Garden, you see a couple of guys in there, and it backs up from the Rose Garden and gets further away. And you hear, I presume it's Alistair P. Benjamin's voice yes. yeah. about how Rossi, you know, swims the moat and, or, and lowers the drawbridge and they get up and they go through the moat and they climb the castle keep from which they could see all the way home. And yeah. then, then Benjamin runs out of the keep where Major Falcon is. And says Amber Jack, Amber Jack, Sergeant Rossi, Robert Clearboy, all dead in the Rose Garden. And then Falconer says, time to raise the drawbridge. Yep. Well, it's been down this whole time. Yes. 
couldn't see it in some of the smoke. And they raised the drawbridge by destroying it, by setting yeah. fires in the boat. R-A-Z-E, not R-A-I-S-E. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I thought about that. That's true. So, but I, And I love that where they could see all the way home. I just thought that. That's that a great line. Whole, yeah. The way the camera goes back and the way that sequence. It's really surreal. I mean, a lot of that movie is kind of surreal. Um, and maybe one of the things I like about it. Yeah. Hassan? So, good luck, Hassan. <laughs> I do not know what to say other that that hasn't already been said. It's it's a very. Uh, Did you like it? Um, <laughs> not really. That's okay. <laughs> Confused him. Like is such a defined word. I did not like it. I I think it, it the 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 ending is a payoff for all that you're going through throughout the the story of like trying to your your brain is constantly trying to 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 straighten a crooked line throughout the film and then at least when it ends with the battle at the end and unfortunately a lot of a lot of carnage a lot a lot lot of guys getting killed it kind of you know it brings the whole it it brings the motif like home like the how you started it you know it, it brings the um the full circle of these guys on this really effed up road in the very beginning coming up you know on this jeep you know it starts off very linear and you know, then they run into uh, they run into the beef eater or whoever that guy is, and it starts to take its it starts to take its turn from that point. Um, the yes, Duke yes, of Maldoray. Yes. yes. When you saw the girl in her long, flowing orange robe first, yes. galloping the, through the forest in the middle the, of the war on the white horse, and you and you already know you're like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. I did enjoy it. It was a very dreamy quality to it. It it it, it managed to sustain that. Um, like you said, also because it was dubbed, that that added to the the otherness of it, like the dreaminess of it, like that what you're yeah. seeing is not quite really maybe what's happening. And then you know that there's a suggestion that well, all of this is you know all of this is a really altered version of what Benjamin is is writing or or, or you know seeing it through Benjamin's perspective right. and that he's writing it with this kind of altered. Um, state of state of beating and also they because he got away he doesn't quite know how it all really ended so like he's he's making he's like filling in the blanks in a lot of ways as the story goes on i enjoyed it it's just it it, every time it started to to kind of ring home for me it would do something slightly absurd and i'd be a little lost again you know i'd be like ah okay there's a there's a movie um from 1987 called walker has have you guys seen that movie with uh, no. I have not. Um, what's his name? Uh, Ed Harris. It's oh, oh I never. Um, uh, it's about supposedly about William Walker who became the president of Nicaragua. This movie is Walker. It's it is because I mean Walker just has a lot of it, it's supposedly a historical feature film, but it's like the, it's like pretty much maybe six or seven days into production the director's like all right you know what i hate the script <laughs> what do you guys want to do and and <laughs> i mean because there's 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 like it's 1853 and there's like zippo lighters and at, at the end of it everybody gets on a helicopter at the end of it and flies away i mean it's like oh, it's one of those things. it's not so so castle keep isn't quite there but it's like a precursor to that. It's just kind of this like willful absurdity. Yeah, it's kind of this willful absurdity. I, I enjoyed it. I wouldn't have watched it if it wasn't for this. 
So, you know, I enjoy, I, 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 I preferred the, uh, professionals Lancaster to, uh, to Cyclops Lancaster. <laughs> this, who, who, yeah. Who just, who just was a specter. He just, he, he wanted to, he started sleeping with the, the, the countess and then he just became like a specter through the rest of the film, like just showing up yeah. and like the Sphinx and just giving pieces of pieces of, uh, um, yeah. advice and, it, and then disappearing again and then uh what's his name poor uh o'neill who you know was in love with the the yeah so i mean you know there there are there's a lot to hold on to if you really want to get into this film and you really get wanted to get into the meat of it it's not absolutely absurd but it is out there but it kind of it 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 does ground itself in the battle at the end because this is kind of what it's been building up to they've been talking about the, yeah, the germans sure. approaching and it's you know the slow build up and them hiding out in this oasis you know because the war has been really bad for them right and so i think you know aren't they i don't know i don't know my world war ii as aren't they getting away from the battle of the bulge the battle hasn't started yet they're what they are is they're at a crossroads where the movie sets it up where falconer is a figures out that the germans are going to counterattack if they don't want to lose the war as quickly as they are going right. to lose it. So he figures they are going to counter yeah, exactly. And yep. because of the star shell, he figures that they're going to come through this area on the way to right. Bastogne. So presumably this is the beginning of the battle of when the, when the Amberjack, I think reports that the Germans have broken out in the Ardennes or whatever it is. I, I kind of read that as the beginning of the battle, beginning of the offensive that would eventually surround Bastogne. So the Germans were essentially on one side, the castles in the middle, and Bastogne is on the other side, and the Germans have to go through yeah. there in order to reach Bastogne and get around, which is a major nexus. So this is the beginning of their around. like kind of desperate offensive to try to forestall yeah. the end of the war. That's why, that's why I read it as. Yeah, and it's I mean it, they're they're the the looming specter of the of the whole piece. There's you know this and the, and but then you do it's almost kind of like they're this unseen like horde of orcs that are coming. But you but every now and then you just you do get. Like Germans just popping up in the story, and they get yeah. they get killed. Yeah. So they're well, yeah. So I mean, I look, I liked it. It's crazy. It's a kind of a crazy film. It's a crazy, dreamy right. film, but I enjoyed it. And I, I mean, I, I I understand what you're saying, Walt, about the end. After watching that film, you're kind of living with these guys for a little bit, you know. And you there's there's a a level of appreciation that they are. They've 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 had the been there, done that kind of situation where they're they're looking at this castle as a refuge not basically from you know being outside or being in the war but a refuge from the entire theater you know from the from the from the whole world that they've been in for the last like 5 or 6 years or whatever and so that's why you know O'Neill's like talking about saving the art and you know Lancaster so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff I was into it's just a little it, yeah, every now and then it just does some some kooky stuff, and it's like, oh, come on, guys. So, but I enjoyed it. I I, I enjoyed the professionals a lot more. But you know, it was a profoundly different movie, a profoundly grounded movie. And then watch that next. But you know, I I have also, unfortunately, in my life, seen Six String Samurai. So this movie is Shakespeare compared to that. So. <laughs> I yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Great you know, it, if you make this film today, I feel like, you know, and I, and I, 
when I saw them on the road at the beginning and they see the woman on the white horse and then the Duke is there explaining, I'm the Duke of Maldoray. Maldoray is not a town. It's a castle. It's right up here. This is where you're headed. I immediately thought that they were all dead and that this was going to be some oh, kind of like ah, allegory yeah, about them being in limbo and that this was going to be a whole thing leading up to their eventual deaths at the hands of whatever. But there was going to be this whole long thing getting there. That didn't play out that way, uh, which is which is fine. Uh, but I feel like if you made that today, that's almost like the direction that you would take with this. That's funny. Well, did say right in the beginning, there's some narration right in the beginning from uh, Benjamin that they'd all died at least twice, and some of them had died three times, which, which also could be read as guys who were way beyond the point of battle fatigue right. at that time. Yes. And were, you know, being sent to kind of recover in the end so they could go out and die a third or fourth time. <laughs> but for real. That's, re- that's yeah. really funny because um, I read the, the synopsis, I think, on IMDb before I watched this, you know, just, just to – and from the synopsis I got there, it's like, you know, I figured halfway through reading the synopsis, like, oh, these guys are all dead. You know, that's that's the trick of the movie. <laughs> then I started watching the movie and the movie is so it's so out of left field that I totally forgot about that. You know, and I'm just I'm just there trying to figure the movie out. And then they all died. So I didn't think about that until until Steve just said it just now. But like when you read it, when you when you start to see disconnected pieces and, you know, the nonlinear stuff. When you, when you start to see that come together on a, on a summary sheet, you know, your mind immediately goes, oh, the trick of this is that these guys are, you know, nobody's here. And then, and then of course, the guy has a piece of dialogue that we've all died twice or whatever. But then when you watch the film, it's, it, it just grabs you and you forget all about all your preconceived notions of whatever it was supposed yeah. to be about. I'm looking at the synopsis here and it's like reading the synopsis, the, the three line explanation of it here on IMDb. And it sounds like it's across. It sounds like it's monuments, men. It sounds like oh, yeah. that they're on a, they're yeah. on a mission to save antiquities at this castle. That's going to be overrun by Germans. And you're like, Oh, all right. <laughs> and then you get into it and you're like, wait, not what? why is this guy in love? With why is Why is there a dude in love with a car? What's, what's going on with it? How's this, how's this working out? We did, you know, that was set up to the extent that Clear Boy, in the first five minutes of film, says, "I hate this." Right, and then <laughs> says it, and then says about the car in the limo. Right, said, yes, said, I hate this car. <laughs> and so he finally found a car he could love. There you go. And you know what's what's really eerie about that is that my friend, uh, <laughs> my friend Courtney, she's in, I think she's in Colorado right now, and it's a it's a strange, it's not a fetish, it's a strange activity but she's taking pictures of all the uh tombstones of famous people no and one of them is scott wilson you know one of the one of the pictures right so i'm looking at it and it's just weird just suddenly scott wilson just a a, a young very young scott wilson Wilson. pops up not herschel scott no and first time i saw scott wilson to the point where i remember him was in the exorcist three where he was not a it was not a flattering character you know so you know, he's just a kind of a weirdo. Um, so it was just it was just eerie just to to have him, you know, have seen having seen his uh, the picture of his tombstone and then have oh, yeah. him just just like oh just to come across thought, him. Yeah, it was pretty out, out there. Well, one of the things I thought I found interesting about well, especially Steve's reaction. I think Latham they had a little bit of this as well, which is that you guys watch way more movies than I do. Yeah, so you have a much broader 
understanding and knowledge of the tropes of films and of the way they're put together, the mechanics of films. For example, I don't know what the initials stood for, but I understand Steve talking about all the stuff being re-recorded vocally. Oh, ADR, yeah. I don't know what that stands Aut- for. Automated dialogue replacement. Okay. It's, and, what they use, it's the modern version of what loop, what they used to call looping. I mean, I know what it is. I understand. I knew from you what you said. I understood the context. And to be honest, it had never crossed my mind that I'd been done with this movie. Oh. That's, I mean, I never thought about it. Well, it's, I just because but a it. lot of movies at that time had that quality to it, yeah, like, especially it was, the, the Leone. So that's, that, the, the fact that it had been done had no effect on my understanding, appreciation, or non-appreciation of the film. Right. It was just a non-event. And there was something else you said about it as well, which I can't remember what it was now, after the ADR, which was the same kind of thing, where knowledge from someone who's seen movies, knows movies way more intimately than I, and sees them with different eyes. And I don't just mean it's a spacey film. I don't like spacey <laughs> films. It was other stuff. Right. It was part of the mechanics of the filmmaking itself that informs your opinion of the movie in a way that it would not inform mine at all. Okay. I mean, I don't know that I, in any movie, you know, listen, I love the Avengers on TV, the Emma Peel, John Steed Avengers. Yeah. I watched them all back in college. I watched them later. I've got them on DVD. I thought they were great. And I don't know, 20 years ago, I'm watching, I probably had seen, maybe I'd seen Monty Python or one of the, or, or Benny Hill. I don't remember. But I'm watching one of the shows when they go into one of the fights and the stunt double for Steed comes in. I kind of went, holy shit, it's a stunt double for Steve who doesn't look, doesn't look anything like him. And that, you know, he keeps fighting like this, so his, you know, one arm is always up, and his head's always covered. And he looks, and even Emma Peel, same deal, some girl with a wig. And now, I can't watch those, I can't watch those scenes without seeing it. I still love the Avengers, don't get me wrong. But it's still, but it's sort of, it gives the fight a different quality now than it right. had up to about 20 oh, years. Oh, yeah, ago. for sure. So, but there is that kind of thing where knowledge informs your view yes. and changes it. And, 100%. and for me, in this movie, the stuff that you're referring to was not stuff that ever crossed my mind. I don't think, for example, I don't think now, if I watch it again, I might actually watch it again soon. I really enjoyed watching it this time around. I'm going to go back soon and watch <laughs> it again. Awesome. I, I just because I, you know, I love some of this stuff. I, again, I love the writing. I would like to be able to write as spacely as that in a linear fashion that inform the comics that I write. Probably I can't do it in Ragnarok. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I did one many years ago. It never came out. That was had some of the qualities of it. It was a Star Slammer story that would have come out at Heavy Metal. And for a variety of reasons, it never... I I did part of it, wrote the first script of a two-parter, never, and I drew part of it, first page or two. And then, well, actually, the first episode was penciled. And the first page or thereabouts was ink never wrote the second half although i knew where it was going let me publish it we'll do it on kickstarter oh all right so, i'll back uh, it for damn, a dollar damn celebrity right, i'll back that for a dollar, I'll back that for a dollar. <laughs> but uh but i find it interesting that you know it is true what you know about stuff and about the mechanics of stuff it's like me reading comics there are very few comics i can read now where I'm not aware of the mechanisms of the yeah. right, and I know, I know exactly what you mean. There's, 
I can read Dan Sakai's Yasagi Ojimbo, and I read it and I enjoy it. I never think about how it's put together. It's well drawn, it's well written, it's well told. I'm done. I'm just in the story. The same way I read Carl Barks Duck Stuff a million years ago when I was a kid, where I would just read it. As an adult, I can still read it, and I still don't bother to think about what he's doing, except I'm astounded by the breadth of his writing and the breadth of the research he did to write all that stuff. I'm just amazed by that. And I mean, Stan's the same way in Japanese culture. So, but regular comics, I don't read a lot of them these days just because I, I kind of look at some of the art occasion to see what people are drawing like. And then I think, why am I still getting a job? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, please. no way. So much of the stuff is drawn so differently from the way I draw. At differently, this not better. Not better. So I just said, uh, you know, well, oh, but a lot of comics, I mean, a lot of stuff like that, a pop culture is really, you know, current style, current mode. It's like Castle Keep, where that does feel like a late 60s movie to me. I, mean, right. I, don't, I don't know that I saw any other films in the late 60s that were like it, but it has a feeling of that time and place for me. Whereas, I mean, maybe the professionals would too, if I knew more about filmmaking, uh, not so much the space equality, but just the way Hassan was talking about earlier, the writing and the way it's presented, uh, the leanness of it, and the let's not over-explain everything. We just We're going to assume the audience is going to understand if Robert Ryan's ready to shoot these horses now, it's because he's in a different place than he was an hour and a half ago in the film. Right. And what's and what's so neat is they set that up with a three second scene early on when a guy is trying to break a horse and oh, he yeah. walks up and punches the guy and fires him on the spot for yeah. mistreating the horse and that's all that's ever shown to you. That's where he's about to get hired. It's where they yeah. pulls up. Yeah. That's the guy you want. You or then got here they got the letter. Or then Lancaster's like uh, painting his entire worldview by saying, you know, that you shoot ten guys, but then you'll you'll go crazy for the dumbest animals that God ever put on the earth, you know. Yep, and it's just, you know, it just it juxtaposes them very, very nicely and very, very organically. Like it wasn't like a, a setup, you know. It's yeah. just another piece of. Yeah. One yeah. of my favorite writers of all time is uh, David Milch. He wrote. Everybody knows him. He wrote uh, uh, Hill Street Blues and uh, Deadwood or whatever. He talks a lot about fanciful associations. Like he's very big on the, like the human condition and whatever. And that 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 a lot of those things inspire inspire stories because of you know it, it's the way people react to certain things or the or the, the the mechanics behind why people make certain decisions that they make because of the impression that was made on them when they first experienced this or that or whatever so one of the one of the problems with doing a podcast like this um having having been you know somewhat an amateur aficionado of of like thousands of movies is that you start to, to see things in a movie language. So then you start to so you start to dissect movies very quickly. Oh, this is going to be one of those, you know. I've had, I had a horrible situation years ago with Rosemary. We were watching Whiteout, the movie Whiteout. And as soon as a certain character came on, I was like, ah, he did it. You know, and we were, we were five <laughs> minutes into the film, you know. And I totally forgot I was watching it with, uh, you know, someone who was just trying to enjoy the film. And I totally ruined right. it for right. And it turned out I was Movie right. Ruiner. Yeah, I was I was absolutely right. One of the greatest things about And you, you hadn't read the comic book? No. No, I just oh, okay. it was a stunt cast also. Like if you've seen the movie yeah. without without being without right. without spoiling it. It's also a stunt cast. Like why is this person here if this person isn't, you know? 
Oh, so you know, there you go. So even I have been aware of that occasionally. Exactly. So, but but one of the greatest things about this, the the the, the great things about this show, it's the basis of every episode of Law and Order. <laughs> oh my God! It's like it's like when you talk about Three's Robert Company. Williams is like, evil. Remember that episode yeah. of Three's Company where everybody misunderstood everybody else? Remember that episode? That was my favorite episode. <laughs> That's every episode of Full House. Yeah, I've never had, I've never seen a movie that someone has suggested on this show, where even if I didn't like it, when I when we inevitably do the show and we sit down and we ask and, and Steve asks the person like why this film, right? That person's reaction to why they loved whatever, even Six String Samurai, you know, it, it, that person's reaction to it is always to me the more rewarding aspect of it because now i start to see it i start i let go of a lot of the the movie language and i and i i can't really see it through their eyes but i can i've never failed to identify with why they loved a particular film or particular you know and so like we because a lot of times we'll come into it like why did why did why were we watching this why did you make us watch this film like we'll inevitably have even though we're playing with the person we'll inevitably have the attitude like why the hell did we just go through that yeah. what is it about this movie that why did we watch castle Keys, for <laughs> yeah. God's sake? but the, but when the person explains i've never failed to understand exactly it's like oh no i can see that you know i can see why you, you like, like oh, that i can right. yeah and i think that helps me personally step away from it. a lot of the knowledge that you have about movies isn't really good knowledge that's not really a benefit sometimes when you're watching something when you're when you're, you're trying to just sit back and enjoy something yeah and you can't turn that that machine off so i mean at least at least hearing someone and, and inevitably this is a movie that someone has seen when they were younger that's been the that's been the, the common denominator in in all of the episodes we've done Someone has seen something when they were in their 20s or their 30s or even younger than that. They, that became their guilty pleasure. They suggested the movie. We watch it. We're like, oh, I don't even understand what I just watched. And then we talked to them and they were like, I went to the movies with my mom and I had popcorn and, you know, whatever. And I sat down and I just remembered this movie awakened this or said this to me or spoke to me in this other way. And that's been for me the thing I enjoy the most about it because I, I get to step out of my own head in dealing with these movies and I get to stop thinking like myself as why the hell did I just watch this movie? And I get to see it. Like I can imagine if I was, you know, 12 years old and I watched this movie for the first time on HBO, I can totally <laughs> imagine this movie would have just totally, you know, this, this would have changed my life. You know, this would have this had a completely different effect on me. There are, there are occasions right. when you watch a movie now that you watched when you were a kid and you and you rediscover it and you're like, yeah, this movie, I was right when I was young. You know, this is a, this was a really great movie. This is pretty solid. I, I had the same experience with time after time. Well, I was like, wow, no, I really, I still enjoy this. This is, this is very good. And then there are, there are other occasions when you watch something, you know, like Beastmaster and you, <laughs> you know, it completely meant, what was I saying? It completely meant something else to you at the time <laughs> yes, that it do, yes. it just does not represent that now. So some of the Bond movies do that. I saw, I saw Jaws 3D in a theater three times <laughs> and I, I saw it again most recently, probably two years ago. And I, and I, and the I, one the 3D one. Yes. The, yeah. The, the, yeah. The Jaws 3. The one with uh, Dennis yeah. Quaid. 
Right. And I and I watched it again all the way through, and I was just like, nah. <laughs> what was it exactly about? I mean, but did you see it in 3D when you watched it all the way through? No, but I know exactly where all the things that they wanted you to have the 3D oh, yeah. effect for were, yeah. like the shark yeah. swimming straight at you. It's, it's, those aren't hard. No, to it's not subtle, especially back then. But not in eight, not in 70s and 80s 3D. No, not difficult at all. Yeah, we got we one got one kicked of out of that movie problems. when I was a good kid. I was with them. <laughs> oh, I was no. with two friends of mine, and we were watching this movie, and we were just we were hopped up, and we I'm not. Uh, and we were not on hallucinogens. We were hopped up on sugar. It literally was sodas and and um, and, and goobers in popcorn, <laughs> right? And I don't know who it was. Was Brody or someone just aims a, a, a spear gun at the camera and fires it, and the, the spear comes right at it. And we were watching it in 3D, and the three of us went ah! And as the usher, the usher came along, I was like, okay, I'm I'm done with you three. Time for you to go. So I didn't finish wow. watching that movie until it came on HBO, like maybe <laughs> nine months later. I don't know what happened right. after that, but two weeks. <laughs> well, I was. I thought about a movie. I thought about giving you guys, but I. It's. It's not a very good movie. But I. I saw it. Speaking of Hassan, I saw it when I was a kid. I was about ten years old. It was the double bill with Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I love that movie. It was a lot better known. Yeah, I love that movie. The double bill was a movie called The Werewolf. And it's, it's probably 70 minutes long. It's black and white, as Earth versus Flying Saucers is. And stars Don McGowan, I think is his name. You know, character actor at the time. Harry Lauder is in it. Another guy from back in those days. A lot of 50s actors. Cheap movie. And it's a really strange mixture of werewolf stuff and a little science fiction where a couple of scientists, a, a, a traveling salesman or whatever he is, gets, gets in a crash. A couple of scientists find him. He's not quite dead. And they take him to their laboratory instead of calling the cops. <laughs> and they juice him up because they're going to try and create a human being who can survive after World War III in a nuclear wasteland. Like and what they, get, what they get is a werewolf. Excellent. And I, I, don't know that, I don't know that the werewolf, I don't think he has a moon phase thing i'm not quite sure why he changes back and forth but i and i when i came home from that movie i had oh, that and the earth versus flying saucers i if you remember morris ankrum they send a beam down and it shows his brain inside yes. his head and i can i had nightmares <laughs> in those two movies my mom not let, let me go to a horror film after that until i was 40 oh boy so that was the end of that that's awesome but but i watched the werewolf and you know, I, I finally saw it later on. It came out on a, three, uh, a pack of DVDs by the same, some director or whatever who had done several of the films. And they were all, like the giant claw, which is like the worst giant monster. Right, right. Seen in life. <laughs> but the werewolf, yes, I'd never claw. seen a werewolf film of any kind before that. So I didn't know anything about the tropes of werewolf movies. And what they, but they did a really nice job of making this guy a tragic figure. In the right. turn, I, you know, I say nice job. You know, it's a buck and a half spent on the movie. So, <laughs> but, there was, but there was a quality that, as a child, I found really upsetting um, and and sad. And in the end, the wolf, the werewolf. Spoiler alert: the werewolf doesn't make it alive out of the end of the movie. <laughs> and I, I now. never do. But he, but he had a he had a he had a scene that I I loved. Having seen the movie more recently. It's not as good as I remember. Oh, that's it's, it's still kind of cool. They've got the the werewolf is turned back into a human being. The sheriff. It just takes place in the Pacific Northwest, some little town up there. 
They've captured him. They put him into, he's in, in a cell in the sheriff's office. And the two scientists are nervous because they're afraid he's going to remember and he's going to finger them. And they're going to be screwed. So they, the sheriff's off somewhere, they lure the deputy out, they cold cock him, and they have their hypodermic needle full of poison juice. And they, it's all dark back in the cell, of course. There's no lights on back there. And so they, they open the cell door and they tiptoe in. They're going to jab the guy with a needle and kill him. And somewhere in there, he rolls over and you just see his eyes open. There are these white eyes in this dark field and you hear the <laughs> and needless to say neither one of the scientists makes it as far as the front door <laughs> and I thought it was awesome it's, it, uh, it probably sounds better as I'm telling it than it was in the film yeah. but it was just you know but that was a movie that made a big impression I don't know if I liked it exactly because it did scare me but it made a big impression on me as a child Sure. and to see it again as an adult I can understand why. Right. Right. I mean, it does, it's not an expensive movie at all. Um, but <clears throat> the underlying quality of the story, given this weird mixture of werewolfism and science fiction, is not bad. And there are, I've seen several films like that where I think, well, you know, it cost a buck and a half to make this movie. But really, there's an idea in here that you can see and you can detect in the film. And it's kind of interesting. Yeah. We're all done with the podcast tonight, right, Steve? No, there's still at least one more place we have to go, Lay. Down the tubes. And again, the internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. So, moving on to Castle Keep. All right. And again, the uh, USA. Uh, I'm calling this the postage stamp edition. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so odd to have like this block just stuck on here and that border that's so specific that just makes it, you know, I understand they're trying to do a parapet wall, but it just seems so unnatural to the actual poster design. It just seems like it's stuck on there. Well, it does look like a postage stamp. Yeah. But it just, I, yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, the, the the, spoiler alert in the, in the castle sequence. Yeah. You know, they did, this, they did the same thing in the Where Eagles Dare poster, a lot of the Where Eagles Dare posters. I mean, you know, you're, yeah. you're expecting you know, those, that something's Those were crazy. I remember those. Those were all crazy. Um, oh, Steve. Yeah. If you still have those, send me the folder with the Eagles Dare poster. I'd love to see them. Oh, you got it. Absolutely. Love to see them. Uh, so next is a UK quad, which is just a sort of slight shuffling of the elements from the American poster. A little. Uh, in England, you have to put the poster stamps yes, on the left. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, and then the next is the French poster, which is uh, part art, part uh, yeah, very glib. Part uh, one, a couple of just uh, the big head of Lancaster from when yeah. he—that's that close-up from when they first when he hops off the jeep at the at the beginning. Yeah, because he's got that mud on his cheek that they all kind of to show that they were all dirty. You know, they all had the same. What's nice about the Lancaster stuff to me is that it's, it's showing it from his good eye side. It makes it harder to see that he's actually got a, an eye patch. Well, you can see a little of the... the yeah, if uh, you didn't know, you wouldn't... You might just say it was the shadow yep. or something like yeah, that. Exactly. That's a nice shot of his and head. Then next is the painted Spanish poster, La Fortaleza. 
It kind of looks like a romance movie. It does. It does. It makes it much seem. Much it makes it see. Yeah, you might be a little confused walking in after you see this poster. They're all yeah. doing the dead giveaway about the castle. <laughs> other than Jesus. the other than well. the fact that three minutes into the movie, he's in bed with the countess. You know. Yep. <laughs> and that's a little shot of Falcon in the corner, right? The lower yes. right. Yeah. Yes, it yeah. is. Sort of. And then uh, next, a is... better representation representation of the same picture. Yes. So Although the woman's week. face is different. Yes, yes, because it's a bit. It's a repainting, but they added uh, they added some more to it. it. Actually, I think uh, I think Burt Lancaster's face may be a repainting as well. well Just enough different. Well, uh, the whole thing yeah. is repaint. I'm sure the guy saw the other painting and did his own version. But yeah. the Italian. At least there we get it. We get a bazooka in the bottom left, as opposed to. Bert standing around, and he <laughs> looks he looks a little like Robert Mitchum in the Italian poster. Mm. A little, yeah, yeah. I'll agree with that. And it looks like Liz Taylor. Yeah, yeah, very that much so. Sure. Uh, and then next is a, a Japanese uh, photo montage with some very very harsh flames going on on a uh, yeah, picture I mean, picture of a tank. This is your movie poster. You're in for a surprise when you see the movie. Yeah, I think there we don't see the castle blowing up, do we? Uh, yeah, it's the only one. I don't know about the lower left. I'm not sure what that is. Very bad blending. That's the star shell. That's the star shell going. Oh, you're right. That's the star shell going off. But I, I don't remember the Stukas and the, and there, the Messerschmitts. Yeah, no, there, yeah. Were no, there were no Stukas or Messerschmitts. There was just the one. Yeah. I mean, this just implies a, a straight-out war film, okay? I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, you're going be... to see this, and you're like, I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> I think the guy at the bottom, I think that's Michael Ironside, isn't it? No, it's, it Mike... uh, it's, it's yeah, what's his name it? from... Michael from, uh, it's the guys. It was one of the guys in the movie. It was the really big guys. He was the guy who played yeah. the sergeant in Hill Street Blues. Who would, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who would start the, the meetings off every week. Yes, right, that is the guy. Uh, be safe out there. Yes. Yeah. Michael, is it DeLuca? I don't remember his or... last name, but that's who it was. In fact, he's the only guy in the film other than Benjamin. I don't think in the movie we ever saw him die. He was badly wounded, and somebody took him down to the inside the citadel and put him on a, a bench, right. and then ran off. And I don't think we ever saw. And he wasn't falling. He wasn't lying on the bench dead. Right. I don't right. think we ever saw him again. So we have to. Whatever happened to him is left to the imagination. Yep. So, uh, unfortunately, Castle Keith, no, uh, I could not find any fan-created uh, posters. So. That's because the movie has no fans. Everyone's so confused. Well, Walter, I guess that falls to you, my friend. I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> Walter, thanks, buddy. Yeah, awesome. Guys, as usual. thanks for having me. Thanks for watching both movies. Oh, no, <laughs> man. I, I, listen. Never would have otherwise. That's and that's the thing. I mean, that's that's why we have guests. It's like you know, one of the reasons why we have guests is it's like you know, it, we love to see what people are going to pick. You know, I mean, you know, we had Mike Pellerito from Archie on a few weeks ago, and I mean, he we did Jaws with him, so you know, it was like the polar opposite. He picked a huge mainstream summertime film that you know had a a ton of you know the what's not been said about Jaws already, but you know, but still one of my favorite movies. Yeah, all of us. Easily. And when I well, I saw it with my with my girlfriend on a date, I eventually married her, so it worked out okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we, uh, when I was sitting at the out in Queens, not far from where I lived, we were watching a movie where that half sunk boat, the derelict, is there yeah. at night, where Richard Dreyfus and Scheider in the Dreyfus's boat, and he goes over the side, and I'm just thinking, 
this just sounds like a really bad idea. <laughs> and, then, and then finally, when he finds that hole in the boat and swims over to it, and the guy's head pops out, yep. and I just went, ah! in, my, in my chair. I must have levitated like two feet off my chair. Yeah. And the guy sitting next to me said, don't do that. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, I couldn't help I'm it. Genuinely scared. <laughs> I would have been. I would have been like, "You better move, sir." Yeah. <laughs> if, the way this this any, if this is any indication of where we're headed, I may have a problem. Oh, well, that may have been that may have been the scariest part of that film for me. That one bit. I did the other part that I completely love. I was scared by, but didn't make the sound like that. Where I scared the guy next to me was that very first shot where yeah. Roy Scheider is chumming, and the head comes oh, up. Yeah. And you see over. it before he does. And uh, that was just... That's, that shot so still static. is just absolutely like, oh, fantastic. It really, it really is big. Yeah, and, it just, and, <laughs> and still, shot. so even though you... Even though when you really stop to look at it, and now that we have a beautiful HD transfer of it, you can see that that shark just looks not all that real. You still just are like, ah! Still good, still good for me. Yes. Still good for me. Yes. Every you know so often have on YouTube and go find that scene and just run through it. So I can watch it again and go, holy cow. I've, I've never seen a great white shark up close. Not even at an aquarium. So yeah, that's, well, that still looks real it? enough to me. Yeah. That, that's as close as I want to yeah, get. Exactly. Right I don't have to get any closer. But thank you very much, gentlemen. Had a great time. Oh, you're, Thanks, you're Walter. Awesome. You're Good always pleasure. always welcome, Walter. All right. All right. Take care. Yep. Over and out. All right. See you all. Have Have a good night. My, there's my leave button. Watch this. Let's see if I and if I vanish, I'll just consider myself canceled by all <laughs> three. Right. That's right. That's right. We have no we've now canceled Bye-bye. the Walter Simonson show. <laughs> Leaving meeting, but not really apparently. Uh, you still have it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, and then he's gone. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Thanks to Purple Planet Music. Get your own awesome music at purple-planet.com. Please check out our website at cinematalpod.com for all the poster images we discuss on our Down the Tube segments tonight. And don't forget to download and subscribe to Cinemental wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You can always listen to new episodes at cinematalpod.com. Also, you can follow us on all major social media accounts at cinematalpod, all one word. Not all one word, just cinematalpod. For Hassan Godwin, Latham Conquer the Third, and myself, we say once again, thank you so much for listening. And as for Walter Simonson as well, because he has just signed off. And as always, in the words of our, our faithful friend and guide through space and time and strange, surreal films. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night.